0: Australia. There's fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms blue as far as But I ain't spending any time on it. Oh, yeah, cam- Don't stop wearing the
1: Speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Tudor Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never
2: tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics.
0: It's cold being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult.
2: Hello, hello. Thanks for tuning in to Decode, the Batuta Advocates political podcast series trying to shine some light on the dark and murky world of federal politics. I'm Wendell Harsey.
1: And I'm Effie Bateman. And today we're talking about the Australian Labor Party or the ALP. So it's like The red team to the liberal blue team, which is the opposite of uh, America. Yep. And uh, the party who are currently in opposition and have been for a few years.
2: Yeah, and as you would have seen, if you enjoy a little bit of 60 Minutes, they are led by a guy named Anthony Albanese.
1: Or Albo, which is the name the Labor Party is keen to push.
2: Yeah, the old tried and tested nickname formula. He is the man hoping to be the next Prime Minister and he's the leader of the Labor Party at a federal level. We're going to be talking to one of his predecessors in Kevin Rudd, the former two-time Prime Minister who has quite a few things to say about the state of politics. He was the last Labor Prime Minister we actually had, so that's why we've got him in. He's in shortly to talk to us about the way he sees the lay of the land. But before that, we're going to do our own little background for the episode, as we like to do. We're going to do a little bit of a run through about the Labour Party and who they are. They're the major centre-left political party in Australia and one of our two major parties along with the centre-right Liberal Party of Australia. For reference, you'd have your One Nation on the far right side of politics and the Greens more on the far left of the political spectrum.
1: Yeah, so the Labor Party and Liberals Nationals are closer to the centre, which is why your uncle or your mate's mum might often say there is no real difference between the two major parties.
2: Yeah, plenty of people do like to say that, which in regards to a few issues is actually not that far from the truth, really. Asylum seekers, tax policies at the moment, defence and so on. That's why they're both classified as centre parties, really. But let's take it back to the beginning and do a little bit of history and background on the Labor Party. They're actually the oldest political party in our country.
1: Yes, yeah, so they were around before Federation and were strongly connected to union movements that we spoke about a few weeks ago. So Labor tradition ascribes the founding of Queensland Labor to a meeting of striking pastoral workers under a ghost gum tree known as the Tree of Knowledge just up the road in Barcaldine here in Queensland in 1891. Then the next year is 1892, the manifesto of the Queensland Labor Party was read out under that tree of knowledge at Buckholden following the Great Shearer's Strike.
2: Yeah, that's where it all happened, apparently. Very smart tree, that one. 99.95 ATAR kind of tree, I reckon.
1: Well, Wendell, as a regional journalist who went to a local school, uh, you should know that ATARs aren't really a fair indication of intelligence.
2: True, fair. Unless you are like Wentworth MP, uh, Mr. David Sharma, who likes to mention his ATAR in his political marketing material.
1: Yes, it's very strange for a man in his 40s and not a uni student. But yeah, that's the romantic narrative of where the Labour Party came from. But from there, things happened pretty quickly. They actually were the first Labour government in the world when they held government in Queensland in 1899. But that was only for a week.
2: Longer than most of my health kicks, to be fair. But from then on, they actually rolled through a fair few governments. They were one of the first Labor governments at a national level in the world. And then, obviously, they were responsible for a fair few governments over the next century. They offered up figures like World War II Prime Minister John Curtin, guys like Gough Whitlam, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating. But more recently, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd again.
1: Yeah, now their policies have changed over time, but generally the big thing for Labour is that they claim to be the representatives of the working class. So sticking up for the little guy is how they position themselves. You might remember if you listened to the Liberal Decode we did that Wyatt Roy said the Liberal Party leaned more towards being representatives of the middle class and people who apparently don't want the government in their life.
2: Yeah, whereas Labor wants to be more hands-on in terms of managing things and having you know greater government spending on stuff like health, education, etc. They introduced Medicare, for example.
1: But obviously those things don't come for free, so the money needs to be found somewhere. And that's why plenty of people know the Labour Party as the party of spenders, and conversely taxes.
2: Yeah, obviously there are a lot of ideological arguments around the merits of higher taxes for certain people and industries, which we won't go into. But say the mining tax is an example, which typified some of the differences between the two parties. The Labor government wanted to introduce the mineral resources rent tax or the mining tax as it was known. And that was a tax on profits generated from the mining of non-renewable resources in Australia. That tax was basically 30% of the super profits from the mining of iron ore and coal in Australia. That drew outrage from the Liberal Party and the resources companies who said that the cost of that would have been passed on to workers and average Australians and it actually wasn't a fair policy.
1: So that was roughly 10 to 15 years ago but now there really isn't a massive difference between the two parties on taxes. Leading into this election the Labour Party have leaned into the tax cut policies of the current government rather than calling for things like scrapping of negative gearing or franking credits, which I still don't understand. I don't know what they are.
2: We may never know. But they are more progressive socially now, the Labor Party. They're quite similar in terms of that financial stuff that you just mentioned to the Liberals. But in the past, the Labor Party weren't as socially progressive as they are now. For example, they were big supporters of the White Australia policy, which, as they said, protected air quotation marks here Australian jobs by limiting non-white immigration to the country but they also did have some more pretty hardline socialist policies on the other side of things like they tried to nationalize the banks in 1945 which is essentially seizing control of private banks and having the government run them which is a pretty hectic idea certainly not something you'd expect from a center-left government
1: but yeah they've strayed away from that stuff As Albo said on 16 Minutes recently, he thinks the Labor Party has lost a lot of elections because they are the party of big ideas and they need to rein it in a little bit.
2: Yeah, and they have lost a lot of elections. They're like the Carlton or the Parramatta Eels of politics at the moment. They've been in government for six of the last 22 years. so uh,
1: Not a great strike rate, which is something we want to ask our guest Kevin Rudd about in a minute, who was the last Labor Prime Minister roughly seven years ago, which is why we're talking to him today. But it's also worth mentioning quickly there the relationship with the unions. If you listen to our recent episode, you might remember that the unions and the Labor Party have a long history as BFFs. Union bosses jump across to the Labor Party and have had a lot of sway over their politicians. For example, the Labor conferences where they come together once a year to talk about policies and issues they want to tackle. Union people have roughly 50% of the votes at those conferences.
2: Yeah, they are very, very powerful. So we want to get Kevin Rudd's take on that, as well as the factions within the party. He's just getting ready to hop into the booth. So last thing, you might have noticed that the Labor Party is spelt without a U. It's spelt L-A-B-O-R.
1: Or you might not because we- not everyone's a nerd. Yeah, which
2: is very fair. But it's actually not known why there isn't a U in the political party's name. There are a few theories um, getting around that it might have been just a typo back in the day and they rolled with it or that it might have been away from mixing it up from the Brits or there's another theory which is a bit more popular and that's to do with the fact that it was a way of distinguishing the political party of Labor from the Labor movement and actual Labor, just making just making it a little bit easy to distinguish between the two with the dropping of the U. Weird one.
1: Yes, some uh, pub ammo for linguistic nerds next time you're at Trivia. Anyway, time to have a chat with Kevin 07.
2: He is a former Prime Minister, a handball enthusiast, uh, a man of many talents. It is Kevin Rudd. Thank you very much for joining Decode
0: today. Good to be here with all of you from Decode and all of our friends at Batuta and elsewhere in the great state of Queensland.
2: Yeah, yeah. lots of people will be listening on the radio, but obviously this podcast goes out nationally. So there'll be plenty of listeners keen to hear you kind of break down the Labor Party and what it stands for and um, what it means. But for context for listeners, what drew you to the Labor Party in the first place? What were the origins of your journey towards the party?
0: Well, my family had no political background at all and certainly not a Labor background. I grew up on a farm in rural Queensland. Mm. I think it came out of just a very direct personal experience. Uh, As a kid, just after my father died, uh, we had to leave the farm that we were living at because my father was a share farmer. We didn't own it. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, I remember the night very clearly, we moved out. Uh, Then we went and stayed with rallies. Uh, It was like being passed from pillar to post. But then I remember we got to that one stage in the cycle where uh, we were moving from one set of rallies to the next, but where the next set of rallies actually weren't home. And so when you spend your first night sleeping in a car, Mm. you think something's wrong. Now, I'm only 11 years old at this stage. But it is a very degrading experience. And that, not having a political idea in my head at that Mm. stage, just struck me as unfair and wrong. Mm. That is, it shouldn't happen to anybody. So I think that's where the primary interest came. And then as I got to high school, it was a country high school. I never met anyone from the Labor Party, but I began as a kid on television watching uh, Gough Whitlam, Mm. uh, the then- Uh, recently elected uh, Labour Prime Minister of Australia. This is the first half of the 70s. And I thought, this guy's making some sense. He's talking about stuff that's meaningful for me. But the big thing was my mum had been saving up because she had to go back to work as a nurse to put um, bread on the table. Uh, And she was saving furiously out of her nurse's uh, salary to enable me to go to university. And then Goff Abolished university fees mm. and made it possible for serious working-class kids to go to uni. Mm. So it's a very, very direct thing, mm. um, and yeah, very personal. And- but I didn't actually join the Labour Party until I was about twenty-three. Yeah, yeah. Okay. it took a
2: while. I thought yeah. it all through. But and, and your family background, being farmers up there, would have been would have been
0: Country Party. Yeah, whatever. then called Country Party, later, later National Party. Yeah. And I said no one in our community was ever from the Labor Party, although they never owned up to it. They would have been tarred and feathered, I assume. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was um, a pretty conservative part of the world. Mate, thank you. Yeah, okay. And so, so all
2: those things kind of added up and it just made sense down the track to find your way to the Labor Party. Yeah,
0: it's joining the bits and pieces together, yeah. thinking mm-hmm. that's unfair about housing and emergency housing and emergency accommodation. Of course, yeah. in our part of Queensland in the Bjorka-Peterson period, there was no social housing or public housing. There was actually nowhere to go to. Uh, so it was relatives or bust. Relatives or the car, Yeah, yeah. assuming you had a car. Yeah. Mm. Other than that, you're on the street. Yeah. And then later, yeah, the big chance that uh, all young people are given, which is to go on to university or to go on to technical and further education, suddenly it became financially possible if you were poor. Mm. And yeah. we were poor. Hmm. Free university, hey? Yeah, Effie? sounds nice. <laughs> there you go. Um, that idea of
2: kind of fairness and equity that you're just talking about, I think that leads us into our, yeah. our first question
0: about um,
1: the Labor Party. Yeah what would you what would you say? Who are the Australian Labor Party, and what are their key ideologies that drive that party?
0: The history of the Labor Party in Australia kicks off around about 1891. It seems like a long time ago, but it's important to make the historical reference because it does make it the second oldest continuing political party in the world. Mm. And and we were
2: the first country with a stable Labor government in the world, were we? That's
0: true. Um, There was a Labor government in Queensland for a week in 1899. Uh, the Dawson government. Mm-hmm. There's been some short tenures recently of prime
2: ministers, but that seems particularly short, one mm-hmm. week.
0: That's true. Then in 1904, there was a minority Labour government under Chris Watson, who mm. was from uh, New South Wales. The first majority Labour government uh, was under Andrew Fisher in 1907. And this was uh, the first majority working man's party government, as they were called at the time, in the world. Mm. Uh, The British Labour Party did not form government for the first time until the 1920s. So the reason I emphasise the history is that it does go back, Mm. not just by Australian standards but by world standards because the emergence of parties representing poor people, uh, working people who are on a living wage at best or a non-living wage at worst, uh, we were right there uh, with them all. So how did it start? The great uh, maritime strike and shearers' strike of 1891, when uh, shearers had uh, their salaries, uh, their wages cut to bits, uh, in and around places like Batuta, actually mm. um, Tree of Knowledge, just up the road here, Tree of Knowledge, and uh, and all in those parts of southwestern Queensland in the sheep areas. But in Melbourne, um, there was a Great Maritime Strike where the same medicine was dished out to um, uh, waterside workers. So they all had their wages cut. And so working people got together and said, well, bugger that. We're not going to have any of that. And so these loose sort of working men's associations, because they all were men in those days, then were formalised into the Australian Labour Party. So, and frankly, within a decade, really, they were starting to form governments uh, around Australia. Yeah, it seemed to happen very quickly, just looking back at
2: it, how these movements got organized to all of a sudden being a part of the government and becoming the government and basically running the country.
0: It's true, the organizing principle is a fair go for all. Mm. It was never in this country socialism. Socialism as a doctrine in politics is, and in economics, is about the equal distribution of uh, wealth, uh, if you like, as an outcome for everybody. Whereas social democracy or labor parties, the two names by which these political parties go uh, around the world, is about equality of opportunity. Everyone should be given a fair go to start, Mm. like an access to an education system of quality, doesn't matter how much money you've got, your ability to go to university, for example, but also access to a fair and equitable health system uh, and also bringing in such things as the age pension for the first time. Yeah. Mm. So what we would in some places in Australia call the social contract between people who create wealth, corporations, etc., and those who work for them, that social contract anchored in a living wage, Proper working conditions so that you're not in danger in the workplace physically, as many people were in those Mm. days. An age pension, a widow's pension, because often the husband, the bread earner, and back in those days, found himself dead at work because the working conditions were unsafe in mines and elsewhere. Mm. And then eventually, rolling the clock on further, other things like what we now call today occupational health and safety Uh, what we now call superannuation, retirement income, then eventually child support. Each of these have been labor government initiatives over the last hundred years. Mm. I just wanted to
2: ask there on the ideology side of things. So, like, we had Wyatt Roy in a few weeks yeah. ago and he's talking about in oh, terms of the, the, the Liberal Party. Another Queenslander. Yeah, yeah, another Queenslander. And he was talking a lot about things like, you know, small government and individualism and all that sort of stuff. And one of the arguments... Yada, yada, yada. You, yeah, one of the arguments that we often hear from that side is that, you know, the idea that we hear from Labor Party about fairness and equity and a fair go, all that sort of stuff, is something that's great in theory and they want it to be paid for by average Australians. For the Labor Party, how do you describe taking up society's wealth as a whole and making sure that it's distributed fairly? Like what's the kind of ideology and the core thinking behind that?
0: Well, on let's call it the broad left of politics, there are two schools of thought. One Uh, is made up of socialists and socialism, and that is not the Labour Party. And the other is uh, social democracy, which is the Labour Party. What's the essential difference? Socialists believe in the complete equal distribution of wealth uh, and therefore that there should be no inequality in um, wage outcomes for people anywhere. The problem with that is it destroys all form of incentive, because all Mm -hmm. of us, including here at um, the People's Republic of Batuta, people are going to work in different jobs and work with different levels of aptitude and different levels of commitment for whom there should be differential rewards mm. now we get that and we accept that because we accept that there is individual incentive that's necessary so what we've sought to do through the social democratic movement of which the Labour Party is part around the world is get the balance right between equality of opportunity not equality of outcome equality of opportunity on the one hand And still giving people and businesses an opportunity to get out there and compete and to generate wealth and to generate economic activity, which then benefits the overall economy. But it's getting the balance right. What uh, Wyatt Earp, sorry, Wyatt Roy didn't tell you uh, was that if government did not intervene for the last hundred years, what do you think the desired wage and salary levels would be in this country? What do you think the desired Working conditions would be in this country. What would be the desired standards of occupational health and safety in this country? What would be the desired superannuation outcomes would be for the working people in this country? Um, pretty negligible,
1: mm.
0: in fact, the least that they could get away with. So, therefore, you need a political party through the agency of government which gets the balance right. There's almost a piece of mathematics involved in this, you know, which is finding the sweet spot between generating sufficient taxation revenue for the Commonwealth of Australia uh, to ensure uh, that we are delivering effective levels of equality of outcome on the one hand and a sufficiently humane safety net for those who hit one of life's brick walls by accident like we did as kids when my father died and the level of um, income after tax you need and corporate income after-tax you need to create the incentives necessary for people to go out and build their own small businesses. Mm.
2: It's that sweet spot thing as a uh, not very handy cricketer at all. I know it's quite tricky to find the sweet spot on a cricket bat, but I imagine that's something that's...
0: I always used to come in at number nine myself. Yeah, I never yeah. So found the sweet spot in my life. A lot of thick life. edges, not a lot of <laughs> sweet spots. Yeah, I've But hopefully in
2: government, in government, that was the aim, trying to find the sweet spot.
0: Exactly. There yeah. is a landing point there. Mm. So who are we at the end of the day? We're kind of the party of the small guy, guys and girls, that is, people who are working uh, for someone else who needs some protections in the workplace, basically in terms of their wages and salaries and working conditions. And secondly, we also are the party of the small guy in small business, people Mm. starting out, getting their businesses rolling. And we want that. We want people to have the incentive to do that. Our vision for Australia is not to have a nation of employed people. It's to have a nation of employed and self-employed people. And that, I think, is uh, the way ahead for us all.
1: So do you think that – because I was going to circle back on uh, working-class Australians. um, I feel like it's not as defined as it used to be. And I, I, for example, I come from a very working-class family who are very sceptical of labour what what are your thoughts of how that has changed and uh, in particular the fact that Labor backs environmentalism and mm. that can potentially, you know, affect working class jobs? How would you say that that has changed? Well, again,
0: the Labor Party and the broader social democratic movement of which we are part tries to get the balance right. On the one hand between, if you wanted to give it uh, an elevated set of uh, economic terms, the rights of Labor and the rights of capital – that is the rights of working people and the protections they need on the one hand and the rights of business owners and operators on the other, getting the balance right. But similarly, getting the balance right between the economy and the environment through what we call sustainable development. And again, this is almost a piece of mathematics if you could ultimately reduce not just a series of qualitative judgments, How do I feel about this river this morning? It actually is about the science of sustainability. The Tories or the conservatives as they would prefer to call themselves Um, the Greed Party, as I usually describe them, whose animating values are not a fair go for all, but their values are me, myself and I, they think that this is a zero-sum game and that, oh, my God, if you protect the environment, you'll bugger the economy and bugger business. You protect working people, you're going to bugger the economy and bugger business. Well, that's just nonsense. Mm. We can get the balance right. And I think the basic common sense of Australian folks... Whatever their background, whether they are working families or whether they're self-employed, I think that idea of balance is where people want to be. Uh, and that's a fair go for all, including a fair go for the environment.
2: Mm. Yeah, well, there seems to be a lot of uh, large companies who are now following the money, and media organisations as well who are following the money. Don't get the me dream. onto them. <laughs> onto, yeah, we can talk <laughs> yeah, about yeah. that That front page a couple of months ago and a certain range of mastheads across the country. We had a bit of a chat with your mate Wyatt and he was um, he also mentioned the fact we're trying to talk about the differences between the two parties we've been talking about today he was talking about two of uh, the most famous Labor Prime Ministers in Hawke and Keating he claimed that they were pretty close to Liberal um, in terms of their economic policies and stuff like that what do you make of those comments
0: what I love about Conservatives or Tories or the Greed Party whoever their representatives are today is they always love uh, Labor Prime Ministers who are long gone Mm. either physically or from political office. Uh, They speak in similar fond terms for Curtin and Chifley these days, long gone. You read the contemporary debates against Curtin and Chifley in the 40s, and even though that government saved Australia from Japanese invasion and then pioneered post-war reconstruction and built things like the Snowy Mountain uh, scheme of uh, hydroelectric power against vociferous opposition from the Liberal Party of the time because if it was the state interfering, interfering where private enterprise should be. Similarly with uh, Bob and Paul, who mm. I knew well and know well in the case of Paul. You read what I had to say at the time about Paul's uh, dream of superannuation for all. Mm. My God, the attack on that is if it was going to lead to the assault of Western capitalism as it's known and the collapse of Western civilization as it used to be known. So this is just pie-in-the-sky nonsense. Yeah. yeah.
2: I, I guess they'd be talking more about things like the privatisation of, say, Qantas and Combank and deregulation of the financial industry, that sort of stuff. They'd be saying, like, financially, there
0: were some policies from those guys that were kind of close to what the Liberal Party were trying to do. Except that the Liberal Party never did it. Mm. The Liberal Party were in office for 23 years under Menzies and then under, in office for 12 years under Howard, and they did none of the above. So that's bullshit too. They really had an unparalleled political opportunity to do so. This is post facto political romance about how Mm. things were.
2: Do you reckon they'll romance about you in 10, 15 years' time? No,
0: they'll never romance about me. (laughs) You don't dream? (laughs) No, I have no interest in being romanced by them either. It's a very (laughs) bad dream. Possibly a nightmare.
2: Another thing we want to talk about is the Liberal Party, they seem to be very, very shy about talking about factions internally and what kind of happens in the Labor Party. It doesn't seem to be as much the case. It doesn't seem to be kind of as much hosing down of the way factions work and that there are factions and that this stuff kind of goes on. How would you describe factions within the Labor Party and what are kind of the main characteristics of each?
0: Um, Yeah, I think I've never liked them in the Labor Party and I've never been a member of the Liberal Party, so it's harder for me to comment. Factions historically in the Labor Party from the 50s and 60s had a role which was um, a hangover of what was the Cold War between the Americans and the Soviet Union. And that is, um, there were essentially divisions about how people in the Labor Party and the Labor Movement viewed the United States uh, versus, say, China and the Soviet Union way back then. And so people on the left were historically, um, uh, had more reservations about traditional responses to national security. But by the time you get to the 90s and the Cold War ended in uh, 1991, the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, the ideological or political basis for factions in the Labor Party disappeared. And while they while they still call themselves left and right, it actually is a very hollow set of propositions. They actually no longer have anything like the political or policy resonance that they did in previous decades. And the division then was largely over foreign policy questions.
1: Mm.
0: So the, that's the historical line. So why have they been retained in the Australian Labor Party? I think this is one of the problems of the Labor Party is they've kept these uh, factions on when they no longer have a policy resonance. And they become sort of internal management tools uh, for the party to organise uh, different interest groups within, within the show. Uh, One of my political errors as prime minister uh, was to say that I would never attend a faction meeting and not to allow the factions to determine who would be on the front bench of the party if we're in government. And I didn't. They didn't like that. No. And a number of those faction bosses, uh, particularly from here in Sydney,
2: in terms of the Labor Party, then, if there's not that much of a difference between them, in your opinion, do, why do they still exist? Is it like, a, is it an ego-driven thing? Is it just a, a bit of natural that. kind of like we need to have two sides on this to get the best out of each other? Or yeah, what do you yeah, it's, it a,
0: it's a bit of an ego-driven thing, yeah. and uh, you know, I no longer think it has any utility at all. Partly ego-driven, but partly, how do you internally? sustain discipline within a mass political party so that um, there is uh, coherence in everything that we do and uh, it's evolved in that direction i i think the downsides outweigh the upsides okay. and i would dearly love to see the end of faction
2: will they again. ever get rid of them or is there just too many people who get off on the idea of controlling a faction or being being powerful within that faction I think the get-off
0: factor is a very big.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any people in particular that really get off on
0: it? Not wishing to issue defamations uh, on your program. But, for example, in the history of New South Wales here, uh, people like uh, Mark Arbib, Mm -hmm. uh, who was uh, head of the New South Wales Right Faction, head of the Australian Right Faction, who developed an enormous distaste for me because I just wouldn't do what the factions said because I didn't think I was wrong. I didn't mm. think it was right and I had a different approach and nor would I bend the knee to we've got to get give Freddie a job because Freddie's been working for the International Artichoke Management uh, Union and uh, sub-faction dealing with folding Very chairs. Very powerful union, the Artichokes. Yeah, folding chairs and Artichoke Management Faction, you know. And I'd say, I beg your pardon? Who the hell are they? And my question would be, who is he or she? Secondly, uh, what are their skills and talents? Thirdly, what merit do they bring to the uh, the team, and therefore, you know, mm. why should we preference them? Well, you know, they've been with the Artichokers for the last sixty seven years, and therefore, if you're pro Artichoke, then you've got to, you know, It's just it becomes a nonsense. It's like, of the dirty so, side of politics. So, Arbib really. was uh, kind of the personification of that, and uh, a number of people around him. Mm. But I think when they overreached with the in within the Labor Party, the coup of twenty ten. I think they've collectively within our show got a really bad name. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I think. A lot within of people. the community. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: A lot of people kind of got, got an idea. Well, people of our generation, that was one of the first times you kind of heard that word, the factions mm. and how it was all happening. But yeah.
1: Could you quickly take us through the relationship between Labor and unions?
0: While we're on the topic of the internal workings of the party. Yeah, and sure. That's a very fair question. Unions predated the Labour Party. Uh, unions uh, in this country, often called Labour Federations, by the way, back in the day. How do they work today? Um, the um, uh, trade unions will, uh, in each state branch of the Australian Labour Party, through the um, state conference of the Labour Party, which is the annual policy setting you know, body of the Labour Party, will themselves select usually up to half of the delegates, and the other half will come from the Labor Party branches, which is, if you're in Batuta, the Batuta branch, uh, mm. the Australian Labor Party. Yeah, not not a huge amount of members out
2: here in Maranoa. But
0: but, but we're working on it. Yeah, that. yeah, we're getting, <laughs> we're getting we've got We've got a branch enhancement program going in Maranoa at the moment. And so they all elect uh, as local Labor Party branches, whether it's in Maranoa, which is a federal seat, where I uh, come from, the, which is a uh, federal seat of Fairfax on Queensland Sunshine Coast, Um, They will elect a certain number of delegates from that uh, local ALP branch members to become delegates to the national conference. So those branch members will then meet together with the union members in an annual conference. So it's about a 50-50 split. Yeah. Uh, and together, they determine policy. So the unions will obviously be interested primarily in um, wages, conditions, industrial relations, um, the future of Fair Work Australia, etc., as well as retirement income, such as um, the future of superannuation. I introduced an extra 3% to come on top of the 9% so that you'll have 12% of people's um wages being reflected in their long-term superannuation arrangements why it gives you retirement income sustainability uh, when you retire eventually uh, out there in Maranoa mm,
2: if we ever retire yeah,
0: if if, nice. if if you if you ever retire whereas on the non shall i say wages and conditions questions which covers uh, everything else on the economic agenda Everything else on the social agenda, everything else on the environmental agenda and everything else on the foreign policy and national security agenda, you'll find the rest of the Labor Party weighs in on all of that. That's the members. So it's an attempt to bring those two sets of constituencies together within one political organisation. A question that quite often you
2: hear is about the unions having too much power. Obviously, they're intertwined from their beginning. You know, the Labor Party and the unions, and um, there was huge membership rates. But union membership is now fallen to I think it's fourteen percent of the workforce. Mm. They still have the fifty percent of delegates at conferences and stuff like that. Mm. Is there too much power held by the unions over the Labor Party? Do you reckon?
0: As I observe the Labor Party today. Um, I think the factions still have much too much power, but to equate factions with unions per se doesn't quite get it right. As I observe the Labor Party today, the unions are not exercising undue power and influence over the political leadership of the party. My problem as Prime Minister was not with the unions, it was with the factions. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I think it's important to bear that in mind. Secondly, um, you're you're right about the overall unionisation rates. But here's the rub. Even Australians who have never belonged to a trade union are pretty happy they exist. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Not many people would like working more than eight hours a day if they weren't getting overtime. Because
0: they know that ultimately it's the unions through the State Industrial Commissions and the Federal Industrial Commission who go in there and fight the case for the minimum wage each year, working conditions annual leave entitlements, Mm -hmm. as well as your retirement income arrangements. So if you may not be uh, an ardent supporter of the Artichoke Management Union, but I think even Australians who are working people who have never been members of the union and believe that from time to time various unions uh, have gone to excess, they still in the back of their head are saying, hmm, I don't want to be left alone in my Mm -hmm. negotiation with my boss. Thank you very much couple of quick questions before we hit the
2: top of the hour and the next show comes in. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is... It, it does seem really weird to say, but... I, 15, did, I didn't do it. 15 years ago, Kevin07 got a pretty good run in the Murdoch press. The media was generally a lot more favourable than you would say it has been over the last kind of 15 years towards your um, run to become Prime Minister. Obviously, there's less and less publications now, more and more concentrated. There was the petition that you had, the campaign you've had to basically get a Royal Commission into the Murdoch media. But going forward, until something changes, how is the Labor Party going to negotiate this media landscape to try and convince people about the things that, you know, it stands for and it wants to achieve?
0: What do you do? Yeah. My position on Murdoch, by the way, is that nobody, whether it's Murdoch or anyone else, should be allowed to have 70% of the print media in this country. It's bad for democracy. Yeah. It's a cancer on the democracy. It gives one person, in this case, a, a far right-wing nut job, too much power. And the fact that so few people actually stand up and say that to Murdoch's face is because we live in fear of the power that he has. The number of corporations and academics, uh, union leaders, political leaders that I speak to, who have been whacked around the head by this guy and had their careers destroyed, but or threatened to be destroyed, agree with everything I'm saying and doing, but will never put their hand up because they know how much power this guy's got. So we shouldn't live in a country where you wake mm. up in the political life frightened, about what this guy could do to you with four front pages in the Daily Telegraph, in Sydney, a state just to the south of Batuta, where they accuse you of being uh, an axe murderer, mm. uh, or the or the political equivalent of an axe murderer, they can destroy a person's reputation in a week, and everyone knows that. Yeah, so. How do you balance that reality? Like, what do you do? For those reasons, to win an uh, we need to change it, which is why I went out there and collected the petition, which is why we've now established Australians for a Murdoch Royal Commission. And this will be something we um, will take to the ALP National Conference, which mm. we've just been talking about yep. in the next um, uh, year or two. Secondly, when you say, for example, back in the day that they were kind of supportive, the only thing I'd remind you of is they clicked in that way at the very end. They Mm. actually tried to take my head off on multiple times during 2007. Do you remember Scores? Scores. Uh, uh, Went to the strip club in New York. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The strip club incident, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So suddenly um, something, I just got smashed in New York. It was just stupid of me. But uh, on the eve of the uh, 2007 election, you may recall, in September, it was all over the front pages of the newspapers, all with the, the objective of ripping me to bits. Earlier than that, they did the same with my wife, and the company that she had established accusing her of paying her workers um, 41 cents an hour. Utter bullshit. But they went into it uh, for days and days and days, weeks and weeks and weeks, in cahoots with Howard and the liberals at the time, to destroy her and to destroy me. So let's not romance or romanticise mm-hmm. what it was like back then. Murdoch hates the Labour Party and Labour governments because he hates our social reform, social justice, and environmental agenda because they all mean less profits for Rupert mm. and less power for Rupert. So let's not and his mates, yeah, And his mates and everything he stands for. So what do you do? You do your best. And I think Albo's trying very hard to do that at the moment. Uh, and at a different level, because I'm no longer in formal politics, uh, what I try to do is just um, bell the cat. Hang a Latin on the problem, so that when you pick up your morning Murdoch propaganda sheet, Courier Mail in Queensland, Daily Telegraph in Sydney, the Herald Sun in Melbourne, the Hobart Mercury, uh, or the Adelaide Advertiser, each of our major capital cities' daily tabloid paper, except the West Australian, is owned by Rupert, apart from the National Daily, which is the Australian, apart from Sky Television, which in regional areas is now being broadcast 24-7, through uh, commercial broadcasting outlets. So, if that's not too much power for somebody, I don't know what is.
1: Yeah. Uh, what do you think Labor's going to do hardest to try and win themselves this election?
0: One is to uh, hang a lantern on the fear campaign, which is about to unfold about national security in China, debt, deficit, and taxes, and interest rates uh, on the other. They're both bullshit arguments. Mm. But by hanging a lantern on it, I mean, is causing the Australian public to realise that when they hear all this stuff, it's just a political distraction strategy. So mm. that's number one. Number two, I think what you'll see from Albo is uh, condensing uh, the message into the three to five core reasons for his case for government. One of which, for example, is climate change is an existential challenge for this driest continent on Earth. Labor's elected to government who will reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 43% by 2030, and, and by more than that, by mid-century. And so uh, as a result, uh, the case for government is going to be pretty clear. And the final thing, I think, is just to remind people that we've just been through two years of COVID. Mm. And people say, well, God, thank God that's over. Well, I hope it's over too. But at what cost? And if you're thinking about debt and deficit, think about the fact that there's now five times more debt and five times more deficit than was ever was under me when I took the country through the global financial crisis, got us through without a recession. And they said that our debt and deficit levels at that stage would cause the collapse of Australia forever. Mm. It's just so much stuff and nonsense. So competence, mm. just basic competence that's the pitch question very basic competence and if you don't if you think COVID's behind us i hope it is too people should ask themselves this question if that's how morrison and his mates handled the last crisis how are they going to handle the next crisis Mm. because we haven't seen any competence really so far kevin rudd thanks very much
2: for making the trip out here and Talking to us about all those things, breaking down the Labor Party, and explaining yes,
0: thank to us. You. No, happy to happy to do it, and thank you for the flies and, um, uh, and everything else out here at Bertuda. Mm. <laughs>
1: it's
0: an experience. Thanks very much, Kevin Rudd. Thank you. See you guys. That was Kevin
2: Rudd, and that was our decode of the Australian Labor Party.
1: Thanks for joining us, guys. Next up, we've got former Wallaby David Pocock on the show to talk about running as an independent down there in the Capital Territory.
2: Yeah, he's having a crack at the Senate. It'll be interesting to hear his take as someone from outside the world of politics. But for now, that is all from us here on Desert Rock FM. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and you'll be joining us again next time. Until then, see you, bye.